Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the search for Christopher Columbus's lost ships. This is part one in a two-part series on the use of remote viewing in nautical archaeology. With me is Stephen Schwartz. He is the author of The Secret Vaults of Time, Psychic Archaeology and the Quest for Man's Beginnings, as well as The Alexandria Project, Opening to the Infinite, Remote Viewing the Gold Standard Course, The Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation, as well as The Vision, a Novel of Time and Consciousness, and Awakening, a Novel of Aliens and Consciousness. Once again, this interview will be conducted via the internet, but with a slightly different setup than in previous New Thinking Aloud videos. And now we'll switch over to the internet channel. Welcome, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. And I think the uh, project that we're going to focus on, the search for the lost ships left by Christopher Columbus uh, near Jamaica, uh, is fascinating not only uh, from the parapsychological perspective, but also because this is a very important part of the history of uh, the Western Hemisphere. Yes, this uh, this project which came to us, we, I, this is one of the uh, one of the rare projects that I didn't begin, but um, was really approached by. Um, opens up a chapter of history that I actually didn't know that much about. You know, we all have these sort of this sort of mythic idea of Christopher Columbus, and in doing this project, I learned a great deal about him and because I did a lot of research and it contradicted almost everything that you're taught in school. So well, it was quite mm-hmm. fascinating to do. For one thing, I didn't realize that he actually made four trips to uh, the Western Hemisphere. That's right. Um, I, I, I knew he'd made several trips, but I know I did not know that he'd made four trips nor did I know that he had been, um, what's the right word? Um, he'd been washed ashore and, and, and left sort of abandoned for, for quite a time. I mean, he'd been in exile for a year and five days. Marooned, I suppose you might yeah, say. Yeah, marooned. That's the word I was thinking yeah. of. He and his crew. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, they never tell you that in school that he came over and that he uh, was marooned and that for a year and five days in, in 1503, 1504, he was washed ashore in Jamaica. I mean, I never heard that before. And, and also there was a mutiny. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, he, well, I mean, that led to a whole series of things. Yeah. Because, then I really began to look at who he was. And I mean, for instance, 
almost nobody tells you that Christopher Columbus made a considerable amount of his money selling sex slaves. No, I mean, that I... just doesn't show up in the history books. But in fact, um, early Europeans took the Arawak and Carib Indians, apparently the women were quite beautiful, and took them back to Europe as sex slaves. I had no That's idea. That's not something you see in the normal history books. <laughs> something that gets glossed over. Uh, another fact uh, that uh, was new to me in reading your report was that at the time of his uh, fourth journey, there was already a, a fairly well-established Spanish presence uh, in the Caribbean. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, uh, you know, as a project, uh, the Caravel project came about. Maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah. The Caravel project, as we as it's called. Uh, or as we called it, came about because Roger Smith, who is now uh, later became the state archaeologist uh, for nautical archaeology in Florida, but at that time was associated with the Institute for Nautical Archaeology, which um, uh, is the principal or the premier institute for nautical archaeology in this country. I think that's fair. Uh, had been searching for several years and had had no luck whatever uh, and was becoming quite despairing of, of the situation. Searching and for the he, abandoned ships. Yes. Well, yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's a good place to start. Columbus came over and there were two ships, the, the Capitana and the Santiago de Police, Aplos, P-A-L-O-S, and he got marooned on Jamaica in St. Anne's Bay. And he was there, as I said, for a year and five days before he was recovered. And he went through a part of the crew mutinied and I mean, all kinds of things. And Roger, who was a or is a, um, a leading scholar of, of uh, Columbus, really had been, this was sort of going to be a major aspect of his uh, nautical archaeology career. He had gotten the funding and had begun this search uh, in the early 80s, and it hadn't worked. And he was really becoming very despondent about it because, you know, funding issues, all the usual stuff. Interestingly enough, he had heard the paper I presented on the Eastern Harbor of Alexandria. I had presented, I, I presented most of these papers originally not at parapsychological meetings, but at archaeological meetings. And in this case, nautical archaeological meetings. And so in Santa Fe, New Mexico, no, Albuquerque, New Mexico, I had uh, presented at an earlier nautical uh, archaeology meeting the Eastern Harbor survey that we've discussed. And uh, he had happened to be in the room. So he heard that that uh, presentation it was one of their plenary presentations. And um, he approached me and said, you know, can you help? Hmm. And so... Um, uh, I liked him, and we seemed to get on, and and uh, although he didn't know anything about using non-local consciousness to find archaeological sites, and was indeed actually rather skeptical, but he was also desperate. 
And, and so uh, we said, uh, okay, we can come out and do it. So we did. That's my, how this project happened. My understanding is that even before Roger Smith going back to the 1930s, archaeologists had begun to search for these uh, two ships that uh, Columbus had abandoned uh, in in Jamaica. So the search had been going on for decades. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, the people who actually know something about Columbus or and his voyages uh, in the archaeological community had been searching for these ships where they were exactly, obviously, and what had happened, how they got there, all all of that. So Roger w- was not the original uh, uh, searcher for them, but the most recent one. I, I don't think I, I don't think there's going to be anybody subsequently for reasons we'll get into. But but um, when you think about Columbus and the exploration of the new world, as they called it, you realize how incredibly dangerous and, and unpredictable and, um, and just how much serendipity played a role in things. I mean, this really was sort of like going to the moon from the point of view of a European explorer. And of course, the people that were there and the civilizations that were there, that's not true. But when we think of the world today, we think, oh, well, we know the whole world. So we know all the whole globe. But at the time that this was happening in the early 1500s, wasn't at all clear what happened when you sailed west and just kept at it. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing uh, is, well, you call this the Caravel Project because the Caravel is the name of the type of ship uh, Columbus had, but uh, actually nobody uh, living today has ever seen one. No, that didn't exist. They were the spacecraft of the 15th century. That's what I came to think of them as. It was a particular kind of wooden ship not a large it's not it's not a warship so when you think of you know mostly when we think about sailing ships we think about what are actually 18th century ships ships of the line with 65 guns and all that sort of thing no these were small ships that that were frankly expendable um and they were like spacecraft and these men that would would go off on these voyages, really, first of all, they had, they weren't going to a specific place because nobody had been there. So they didn't know where they were going. They had no idea what the conditions that they were in, going to encounter were going to be. Um, they knew there were, at this point, they knew there were other people present, but... Um, they didn't know who these people were or what they were about or any of that. Mostly they were seeking uh, gold or a navigable strait. That was the big one to the Orient. So imagine you're a, oh, a 18 to say 35-year-old man, that would be older, and you sign up to go aboard this little wooden ship and it sails away from Europe, and it goes for a number of weeks. You have no idea what's going to happen to you. You don't know 
who you're going to encounter, how you're going to be received if you do encounter anybody. I mean, it, it really, they are the astronauts of, of the early exploration by Europeans of the New World. And I gather that Columbus had about a hundred men with him. Yes, that's right. Again, these are, these are little ships. And you were aboard this thing. I mean, you know, if you, the more I got into this, the really the more I recognized their, their adventurousness. Because you remember these ships had no way of making water. They had to take whatever. They had no way of getting food other than fish. You had to take everything you were going to need aboard with you. You didn't know if you'd run out. And if you did run out, you didn't have any way to replace it. You know, it wasn't like they had uh, desalinators and that sort of thing. I mean, water became a huge issue. And they stored the water in wooden barrels so after it had been, it been there for quite a while, um, it got pretty nasty. They didn't really understand about scurvy, the lack of vitamin C yet. They didn't really have a very clear idea of that because these voyages were so long. So people got sick, their teeth fell out. Uh, I mean, all sorts of things. It really required a certain kind of personality to be willing to do this. And that Columbus did it multiple times is, is quite extraordinary. The ships, I gather, were also somewhat leaky, so they had to bring caulkers uh, aboard the ship in order to repair the leaks when they occurred? Yes. Yes, I mean, these are <laughs> these little wooden ships that were built basically because as I say, they were expendable. They weren't the most expensive ships. They weren't the most um, well-equipped ships. They were like little space capsules that they sent out, hoping that they would find something. But if they didn't, well, the loss was sustainable. So, and and I gather the expedition had originally four ships. So with a yeah. hundred men, that would be about twenty-five men on each one. Yeah, between twenty-five and thirty-five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, at some point, uh, Columbus had to abandon two of those ships. That's right. Two of the ships didn't make it at all. And it had to be abandoned. So then, um, and they didn't have the capacity when they got marooned, they didn't have the capacity to build a new ship. So they didn't have the tools. So, I mean, also you think about this and think these guys washed ashore in these ships and sort of ran aground on the, in St. Anne's Bay. They didn't have the ability to make a new ship. They didn't know that anybody would ever find them. So imagine that you're a you're a man uh, in his twenties. I mean, some of them went up into their forties, but mostly they're younger men, and and you wash ashore, and you don't know that anybody's going to be there. Uh, the situation quickly degenerates into a kind of survival mode, and and um, they had. 
inadequate tools to, to, because they didn't know what to bring and they could only bring a certain amount. And you thought I might spend the rest of my life marooned on this island in the Caribbean with no way to contact anybody. I might never see another human being other than these guys that I'm with. I mean, it's, it takes, it takes a certain level of nerve to pull something like this off. Yeah. I, and, and I also understand they were receiving a certain amount of food and water and supplies from the natives there in Jamaica. Well, yes, as it turned out, but mm-hmm. they didn't know that. Right. That's the point. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're going to, you know, when you think about today, if you tried to sail from, from, uh, uh, somewhere in Spain and you wanted to go to Jamaica, well, you know, you'd be able to call the Coast Guard if you got into trouble or you knew that if you could get there that there'd be plenty of stuff that could get you restarted. And and um, they didn't have any of that. They mm-hmm. just sort of went off. Mm-hmm. But but there was a, a presumably a Spanish garrison on, on the island of Hispaniola. Uh, yes. That, which, and, which, and they knew... That had already been established. Mm-hmm. So they they knew that there was somewhere, but of course, because they have no communications either. Yeah. So you have no way to call anybody. It's not like <laughs> you can get your satellite phone out and, and and turn it on and call the people in Hispaniola and, and say, listen, we're stuck here in St. Anne's Bay. Could you come down and get us? So you just... It, it, the thing that you come away with, or that I came away with in doing this project, was the incredible fortitude and sense of adventure that is in the human spirit and the willingness to take risks. Now, they were taking risks because they thought they were going to get rich, um, but they were also taking risks because... I think they just, it was just the adventure of the thing. You grew up in a small town, a little village. You never went more than five or ten miles from where your little village was. Most Europeans travel, you know, people, um, wealthier people or people, maybe in the army, if you were conscripted into an army, you traveled. But most people didn't travel very far from where they were born. And so the, for these guys, and they have very little education, for these guys, the idea that you got aboard this ship and you sailed away from everything you knew, recognizing that you might never see it again and you were still willing to do it, that was the real takeaway for me, was the spirit of humanity in exploration. Mm-hmm. I guess it's also worth mentioning, parenthetically at least, that uh, conditions in Spain at the time were rather uh, uh, harsh. The uh, Spanish Inquisition was uh, going on full swing back then. Yes, oh, absolutely. I mean, Spain itself was in a state of turmoil. And so um, the, the Inquisition had begun because of Reformation movements and also because and we've we've touched on this elsewhere, um, it, although this happens a little later, 1545 to 1563, the 
growing concern of the Roman Catholic Church, not only of, of what they considered to be heresy, that is the Protestant sort of Reformation issues, but also the rise of science and the threat that was perceived that 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 um, the church perceived science to be, culminating in finally what has had a huge effect on Western civilization. The Council of Trent issued these edicts, which said basically anything that has to do with spirit, read consciousness belongs to the church and science can only can cover things that are physical and that's where the rise of materialism begins so yes the church is in turmoil a lot of europe is in turmoil of various for various reasons various you know small what can we call them the duchies palatinates whatever fighting constant wars, um, the Moors, the, uh, the thrash going on in the church, the beginning of the Inquisition, which really gets started a little later, 1532, really gets started. I mean, the church authorized the creation, uh, this is pre-Columbus, but the church authorizes the the creation of torture chambers so you get a sense of the of the fear and the struggle that was going on these were not tranquil times this was not a these were not tranquil cultures this was a period of of not only exploration in the good sense but also of uncertainty and unclarity um, and violence. So Columbus is, and his men li are living and, in a world whose context we really need to understand better to understand what it was they were doing or trying to do and why they were doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, now let's switch over to the uh, work that, that you did. Uh, you've developed uh, some very interesting protocols for applying uh, remote viewing in situations of this sort, uh, and we should go through that step by step. Sure. Well, as we've said in earlier interviews, I, I began doing experimentation in 1968. And unlike most people who come into parapsychology, at least I think I'm right in this. Maybe you have thoughts and I mean, I'm sure you have thoughts, but I never got, I did not start from the, is this stuff real? Because I spent, before I started doing experimentation, I spent five years reading all of the Edgar Casey readings, which are, I basically have now think of and even then began to think of as essentially remote viewing, very carefully documented remote viewing sessions. And I read, I can't say that I read every single parapsychological journal ever published, but I certainly read almost all of them. I, I've gotten very systematic in reading and doing research. And so 
I had started with the Casey readings and then the Rudolf Steiner material, the Blavatsky material, the the Gurdjieff material, the Uspensky material, the Bailey material. I I had read um, uh, War Collier's book. I had read um, uh, Upton Sinclair's book about thoughts through a mental radio that his wife Harold Sherman's book about with Wilkerson about the Arctic explorer explorer um, and and their attempts at what amount to remote viewing they didn't call it that but. So I had read all these books, and then I began very systematically reading the journals. I thought, well, you know, you really ought to to read what other researchers have done. I always think it's very important to to not reinvent the wheel and to learn what happened to people who did try to invent the wheel before it got to you. And out of that, I had come away convinced that non-local consciousness existed. That just I, 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 I just thought that was a rather dumb question, to be honest, because I thought the the evidence was overwhelming. The other thing that I had taken away from the parapsychological literature was that it wasn't very well designed. That most of the pioneers who did this work, uh, particularly in the United States, when statistics began to dominate it, the experiments were not very well designed uh, because the main thing that they took away from them was what they called the decline effect. That is, the more you did experiments, the worse the outcome. And the reason it became clear, at least it seemed obvious to me, was it was boring. Guessing dice or Zener cards, awful, awful targets. Or... Um, or guessing cards, that, anyway, all those kind of experiments. First of all, it's meaningless. And second of all, it's just boring to do it over and over and over and over again. And so I would read these papers published in the journals about how they would do these experiments and people get, they would get worse and worse at it. So from my point of view, the question was, how can you design an experiment where people get better? How can you design an experiment where people are engaged and, and are fascinated by what they're doing? Um, and also, uh, because I had been an investigative reporter for newspapers, and I knew that if you wanted to do an investigative report of, say, a city councilman who was who was being bribed in a construction deal, for instance, that in order to get it right, you had to interview a lot of people. And you had to interview the people individually without the others knowing they were being interviewed. And only when you had interviewed a whole bunch of people and you put together their answers, could you figure out what was actually going on? Because nobody got everything right. Nobody even noticed everything or was privy to everything. And they had biases. And so they reported some things, but they glossed over other things or gave different emphasis. But if you would interview, well, I mean, to, uh, since I'm actually using a real case, 
Um, in the case of this city councilman, I, I was doing this story about a road project that was being done and why this particular construction company had got this deal. And, you know, there was, it, it was all very murky stuff. It was kind of like the Donald Trump real estate deals. And um, as I did this, I began to realize that you, you, this idea that you had to get multiple input. So when I started doing this kind of work, my idea was that the same thing that obtained in investigative reporting probably would obtain in trying to do something practical. Because, as I said, I started not from the premise, does this exist? You know, I'm designing an experiment to prove it exists, to get to some statistical level. I wanted to to do something that had practical utility. I had two questions when I began doing research. How does it work and what can you do to make it work better? Those were the two questions that I had. It was not, first of all, I wasn't very good at statistics. And I wanted, so I wanted something that had such a clear and unimpeachable outcome that although you could do statistics, statistics were not really going to be the defining thing. I mean, if somebody tells you where to find a sunken ship that people have been looking for for decades and you can go and find it, the statistics may be very impressive, but really what matters is you found it, right? So I, my interest, how does it work? How can I make it work better? And how can I do it under such unimpeachable conditions that I won't get criticized because I don't like to be embarrassed? And so from the very beginning, uh, that, that shaped the kind of research that I did or designed. <clears throat> And, and amongst other things, it also, from the very beginning, I would write out what I was going to do in great detail. I mean, really mind-boringly detail. And I would send it out to groups of people and particularly to critics and say to them, what am I, what, what have I missed here? I would, I would send you a, a document that was maybe a hundred pages long, spelling out every little detail. What kind of, if I was going to use an instrument, what kind of instrument, how the circuitry was done, just boring stuff. And I would say to you, Jeff, please go over this and tell me where the flaws are. And I would send it out to people particularly who claimed it couldn't be done. And they would make suggestions. And most of the suggestions were focused on things that I didn't think made any difference because I don't, you know, it's like, Blindness is important, but not for the reasons that most people think. So if you had a better way to make it blinder, as an example, or more random, as an example, I was I was all for that, because that's not what I think is really the operative uh, thing that matters. So uh, people would write me back and say, you know, I think if you'd get a better widget on this part, that it would work. So... By the time I got around to actually doing it, I wanted people to talk about the results, not about how I did it. And um, that's always been my practice, that and this multiple thing. And out of all of this emerged 
what came to be what has come to be known as the Mobius Consensus Protocol. And it's, you know, it's it's basically what I learned as an investigative reporter. It's the same thing that intelligence people do. It's the same thing that the police do. Um, you get multiple inputs. You break the inputs down into their concepts. And you look at, in, in my, with great detail, about where people agree or where they're wrong. I mean, you know, if you read your Sherlock Holmes, for instance, He's always, the whole thing pins on whether the guy shaved on the right, with a window on the right side or the left side, or whether the dog didn't bark in the night. So it was little bitty details. So I would, um, I developed this technique of breaking down the things that people told me into their concepts and giving each concept an alphanumeric designator. So if I said, for instance, the man in the blue and white striped shirt, uh, I'm only saying one sentence, man sitting, blue, white shirt. I think that's five concepts. So each one of those would get an alphanumeric designator. So if you were the very first viewer, then I would say R for respondent, R1, first respondent. First concept, R1 colon 1, R1 colon 2, R1 colon 3, and so forth. And then the next person who did the interview, I would say R2 colon wherever, whatever. And so that you could also see things develop sequentially. Because very early on, I realized that, that there was a kind of bio circuit going on and that the viewers, although they didn't even know the other viewers were what they were doing or saying they were blind to all that that somehow they had a connection because I would begin to get someone would say oh I see uh, I see a man sitting there and he's got a he's got this shirt but he's got a darker t-shirt and then somebody else would say oh, oh I see this guy sitting there and he's got this black t-shirt and then he's got a blue and white shirt on top of it and so I get from dark to black, if you see what I'm trying to say. So that's the Mobius consensus protocol is a way of getting multiple respondents, which is what I call the viewers, multiple respondents to answer the same set of questions and then break down their responses into their actual concepts and compare them one by one and um, in sequence so that you can see how a concept develops because I realized that if uh, uh, that if all consciousness is interconnected and interdependent that at the non-local domain level that there is an interactivity that is going on that is and then I came to understand that it was shaped by intention so the the question is, how do you get people to hold intention about the, a particular question? You, you're creating a bio circuit, that's the way I think of it, mm -hmm. in which both uh, the viewer and the, the um, respondent are inter interconnected. I got to that because when I was reading the Casey material, 
there are things that he did, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of things, which are so sort of startlingly accurate that I was just blown away, you know, that the thing, a smell in the room. So that taught me that all the senses reported. Most of the early parapsychological stuff didn't get into things like that. But by reading the Casey readings, I realized that all the senses reported because he would describe smells or sounds. Oh, I can hear the bus going by outside. Or I can hear the birds chirping. And then the people would write back, oh, at the time you were giving the reading, we had this flock of birds in a tree next to the window, that sort of thing. So all the senses report. And um, and in doing that, I realized that um, because it's a bio circuit, that there were also things he got notably and outstandingly wrong. For instance, I think almost all of the Atlantis stuff is wrong. And so then I, once I began to think about that, I thought, well, why would it be wrong? And then I went and got into the histories of the people that asked the question. And they um, they were fanatics about the subject of Atlantis. Now, now you're referring to the Edgar Casey readings. This is the Casey readings, yes. This uh -huh. is how I learned this. Yeah. And so I realized that the questioner, the intention of the questioner, and the attitudes and expectations of the questioner influence the quality of the respondent's answer. These were people who were fanatical about Atlantis. They were asking him to give them information about Atlantis. They weren't neutral about the subject. It wasn't like they were, you know, somebody who, well, I heard this word and what can you tell me about it? It was, I've been studying this for years and I'm obsessively concerned about it and what can you tell me about it? So that taught me that the expectations and intentions of both the researcher and the respondent play a role in the quality of the answers. We now call this, you know, the observer effect, mm -hmm. and it's well documented in science. But, but at the time, this was all very new stuff. So when you talk about bio circuit, you're referring to all of the participants in, in, in the experiment, including people who are even peripheral. Yes. Uh, and, uh, exactly. Uh, and that's also why I went to such great lengths to have the, the experiments critiqued before doing them. Because I met, I, 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 and I had, all of the stuff that I do is, first of all, it's all out in the public. It doesn't happen in the laboratory. I mean, you know, there's people walking around, there's film crews. I invite other scientists to come and observe this. I invite skeptical scientists to come and observe it. Um, so there is, there's a lot of, there's a complex of intentions. Maybe that's the way to describe it. But you protect against that influence in a sense because you've gotten everybody to agree in advance that it's being done in accordance with their, um, their version of what would be the correct way to do it. 
So this this intentionality, the, the more I got into it, the more the question of intention. And then I got interested in, well, who are the good viewers? And you and I have discussed in other interviews, you know, I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to see if there was a particular personality type, Myers-Briggs and Wass and all these other things, um, to see if there was a way of defining who would be good at this. But what really turned out to be important, and, and I was lucky in this because I was a meditator and many of the people that I used initially in the remote viewing were also meditators. And I, so when I went back through data that had accumulated in my early research, I realized that the ability to attain and sustain intention focused awareness was the key to success. In my very first experiments, I created a grid in my back garden and I would, I would bury bottles of a mason, mason jars with things in them and ask people to first locate in the grid. It was originally 12 squares. Then it became 144 squares because a statistician told me that would be more impressive. It didn't make any difference. I mean, and the outcome that didn't matter, but in any case, it made it more impressive statistically. And I discovered that people could describe where these, they could pick the right square. I would send them a mimeograph form with a, with a drawing of the grid, 144. It's just a grid of 144 squares. And I would say, somewhere in this grid, I have buried an object. I want you to describe it for me, please. And it would be a mason jar filled with a perfume bottle, for instance. I would try to get all the sense impressions or something that was smelt sour or foul. And, um, because I was trying to get people to give me sense impressions. And, and when I went back through that original data, I discovered that the people that were meditators always did better than the people that weren't meditators. So I tried to put together teams of remote viewers who were capable of attaining and sustaining intention focused awareness. I also discovered that um, people who were who scored higher. The one thing, there are a couple of things I took away from all that personality work. Uh, one of them was people who do creative activity uh, and who have this sense of being able to open to their creative aspect, writers, painters, um, doesn't matter, uh, poets, you know, anything that where you're involved in a creative process, not just a cognitive, rational process, that those people did better. I didn't see any difference between men and women. So I put together teams and I've settled on usually just for the reason of, of just it was so cumbersome to handle all the data. Uh, this is all pre-computer. Most of it's pre-computer. Seven to 11 people. So that was a typical team of viewers. These were not people who defined themselves as as viewers or psychics, a word I dislike. And never use or rarely use, but who were creative men and women uh, who were open to the idea of trying this and who had the ability to attain and sustain intention-focused awareness and, and to work with them together and then to do this analysis. And the point of the remote viewing is 
it's not the end part of the experiment. It's just a part of the process of the experiment. So the, the, the goal of the, of the remote viewing part of the experiment was to develop a set of field hypotheses which could guide field work because the Mobius consensus protocol is based not on a searching technique, but on a finding technique. I don't know why people have a hard time getting that, but it's not like you search for things. You know, the Columbus Caravel project, uh, the remnants of the ships that we found, this happened, you know, in half an hour. In other words, a searching technique might be you, you fly an airplane uh, very carefully, line by line by line, over, over a, a particular area until you find what you're looking for. Exactly. And that's not and it, what you did. No. Although, and, and uh, this is also important, because this was one of the things that critics would say. They would say to me, you know, if... If you had had a side scan sonar, you'd have found that anyway. So how do I know that it's remote viewing? Well, maybe you just got lucky. It was out there and anybody that would search for it could have found it. Now you could say, I mean, in the Caravelle project, you could say, well, Roger Smith had been out there for years trying to find it, hadn't been successful. But what the critics taught me was run a parallel search of the same area using standard electronic remote sensing. And so in all of my archaeological projects, and this one is a good example, there's satellite surveillance, there's side scan sonar, proton precession magnetometer, ground penetrating rate. I mean, whatever is the appropriate traditional way to search. So I run those in parallel, and I don't do them. I either hire people to do them. I get another university to to um, uh, to do it for me, or um, the people that I'm working with are already doing it. You know, one way or another. But there is a parallel searching process using traditional electromagnetic modalities to see if that can find it. And in, in the case of the Caravelle project, and indeed the case of all of my projects, it didn't work. That is, you couldn't find the things that we found using electromagnetic sense technologies. Mm -hmm. So whatever when, the appropriate one was. So when Roger Smith uh, approached you, what, what did you uh, first do? Well, he, first of all, he had already done a great deal. Mm -hmm. He'd been at this for quite a long while. And as I say, you know, he, I mean, he had, you know, we had done um, aerial, uh, uh, I got hold of satellite imagery of the, because at that time, um, things were beginning to be found using satellite imagery. Um, a number of our significant archaeological finds have been made from satellite photographs. So we got satellite photography. Um, we did, uh, he had done geologic coring. He'd done uh, side scan sonar, proton precession magnetometer. So that had already been done unsuccessfully. I got the satellite stuff. That didn't work either. I got the, these satellite images 
from NASA and from a private firm that, that had them. Um, we tried to exhaust every possible way you could search for these things using traditional mm, physical technologies to search. And it had been unsuccessful. So then if you found something <clears throat> uh, using remote viewing, and as I said, it's not a search technique. The way it works is you go out and you go to the place and you, you, uh, you dive or you dig, whatever, or you dive and then you dig um, and you find it or you don't find it. Mm -hmm. So there's not, it's not like I search whole areas. It's, this is all very, it gets very tiny. So you have to identify the place. Yes. So what you do is that, and, and, um, and I'll send you the maps so you can, or you can get them out of the paper. Um, I got a C chart and on the C chart, I, um, uh, I re I took the place names off and I, um, they provided me a chart, a blank chart names removed. I gave them as much control of that to make them feel comfortable with what was going on. And I asked uh, the viewers to uh, go over the chart. And it's, I, I also, because I had read research literature in the neurosciences that said people were attracted to colors that they liked or didn't like, so I take all the colors off, so there's no color to, to attract your eye. Um, there's no forms. They get very simple. I, I actually think you could do it. I, I never actually tried it um, to just use a blank sheet of paper, but because I, I, you have to engage people's attention. You know, you have to get their mind engaged. But in any case, in this case, these were these – were, um, a large paper, white and black uh, maps, a sea chart of St. Anne's Bay, which is where they knew he was. I mean, that was the other thing. Uh, Smith and other archaeologists, I mean, they knew he was in what today we know as St. Anne's Bay. They just didn't know where. How, how large is St. Anne's Bay? Well, let's see. Let me uh, – uh, the – the original search area uh, that we started was our search area that we began with a 4.35 square miles okay. uh, that they had been searching. Mm -hmm. they, they felt that, that based on all of the work that they'd done, they got it down to 4.36 square miles. We produced an area that was 1,041 by 541 feet. So it's um, about 0 0.02 square miles. Mm -hmm. It's a, quite small. And then what you do is you you have to – I started to say, or maybe I didn't complete quite no, properly. No, we need to know exactly how you narrowed it down. Yeah, is that what you do is – the whole point of the consensus protocol is to develop a set of field hypotheses to guide the field work. So you're not searching this huge area. You start with, it doesn't matter how big the area is. 
at least I've never found that it made any difference. You get down to, and not everybody will get it. What you're looking for is what we call a consensus zone. So you ask somebody, uh, Jeff, I'm going to put before you a chart of an area that is somewhere on planet Earth. I, would you please go through this chart? I'm looking for the two uh, ships that belong to Christopher Columbus, uh, the, the Capitano and uh, um, Santiago de Police. Would you please go over this chart and, and would you answer this first question? Are these ships located within the area of this chart? So if you said no, well, then we'd have to stop and get another map. You get a bigger map. If you say yes, as they did, uh, okay, now we can go forward. So then I would say to you, all right, Jeff, would you please go over this chart? And would you make a location circle as small as you can make it where they are to be found? And so you would go through and you'd make a little circle. And then I, you'd answer all the other questions and that'd be the end of your session. And then I'd bring somebody else in and I would set them up and I would say to them exactly the same thing. All of this, by the way, gets recorded and videotaped. And they would say their answer and they would make their circle on their clean chart. And we'd just go through that until everybody that was going to do it was going to do it. That, now, that sounds very similar to what some people refer to as map dowsing. It is. Mm -hmm. Map dowsing is a way of using, is a kind of, of um, binary, um, non-local perception. Mm -hmm. In fact, a number of my, my viewers use dowsing. Alan Vaughn, for instance, a man that we both knew, Alan liked to use a little pendulum. Uh, Hella Hammond, her idea was to go over the chart and where it felt warm, that is where she would mark. George McMullen would do it. He would go over the little chart and wherever it felt heavy, it feel like his finger was being pulled down. I don't know what that means, but that's what it meant to him. That's where he would mark. So people have different sensations to do it, but they, each person would make their little mark. And then uh, on a clean chart that nobody else had marked. And then when all of the interviews were finished, then I would take all those charts and put them on a light table and the light would shine up underneath. And you could see immediately. I mean, today I would, uh, if I were doing the Caraval project today, I'd, I'd do it on an iPad. But, but uh, in any case, the, the light would shine up through the light table and you would see immediately that there were areas where most people picked and that would become the principal consensus zone. And so that area that that's how we shrank 4.35 miles down to a few hundred feet mm -hmm. to two one hundredths of a mile. Yes. So yes, but to two one hundredths of a mile. It's okay. Two one hundredths of a square mile to be precise. Yes. yes. So this is mm -hmm. quite a tiny little area. Yeah. So then the next phase is you have developed the hypotheses to do the uh, to, to guide the, the field work. 
then I take, so you're going to be one of the viewers. So I take you down to the area and I take you, uh, and this is established by either survey or today we, or otherwise I've used GPS. I'd take you to the edge of the consensus zone and I would say to you, Jeff, we're at the edge of the consensus zone. Here, since we're doing a, a, a marine archaeological project, I'm going to give you a buoy. So now we're and in I, a boat. In other words, we're on location. We're on location. I take you to the location. Now, I don't take all 11 people to the location. I just take two or three because that's all you need. Um, and so I would take, uh, we're now down in Jamaica. If we're going to doing the Caravel project, you've flown down in Jamaica with me. Um, and I say to you, okay, Jeff, we're going to get in this little boat. Here's a buoy, a little orange buoy, and we're going to go out and you're going to guide us. So you tell us where to go within this little consensus area, not very big. And when you're right over the site that you think is the location of these of these ships, maybe they're in different locations, there may be more than one consensus zone. There were two ships. If you if you will drop your buoy at just that place, then that's what we need to do. And so you'd go out in a boat and we would you'd drop your little buoy. And we would fix the location of that, either again, either through GPS or through multiple survey uh, 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 survey techniques. And uh, so we could get it exactly fixed down to inches. And then we'd take the next person out, do the same thing. And again, we would hope that you all would drop your buoys at about the same place. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. And so now you know that that's the search. Mm -hmm. So then the next part is, oh, and I would say to you while we were in the little boat, uh, I would ask you, for, is there anything else you want to tell me about this site? Uh, you're now over the site that you've previously picked. Um, your life size. Uh, can I see the site if I got my if I got my diving gear on and I went down? And you could say, no, actually, you'd have to dig down a few feet. So I can't say, well, how many feet? Because that's too analytical. That engages a different part of the mind. So I might say to you, Jeff, I want you, you're standing on the wreck itself. Put your hand up over your head. Does your hand come up above the sea floor? So you're about six feet. So if you put your hand up, you're about, that's about seven and a half feet. So if your hand is sticking up, I can measure the size of your arm minus your hand and say, well, Jeff is about six feet. I don't know what your height is, but sort of that. And, and your, your arm is, uh, uh, two feet, five inches and your, but your hand is up above the sea floor. So, Six, so this is about eight and a half feet down. So I can get the analytical answer without actually asking for the number. And that's exactly what we would do. And so they said, well, no, you'd have to dig down a little bit. Or in this case, uh, they would say, well, you know, it's not in one piece. It's all busted up. And in fact, um, 
Wait a minute, we have a pussycat who has awakened and who needs to go down. <laughs> okay. Um, so, in that way, I get not only the exact location, I get a description of what I'm going to find before I find it, but I also know spatially in three dimensions about how far down I've got to dig. And I know, I mean, by the time I was doing the Caravel project, I'd done a number of pro other projects. And so I knew that I could get this thing down literally to less than a foot. So out of the original four plus square miles, I'm now talking about a ruler's length. So it's very, very specific. And I have a list of things that I think I'm going to find. And that's, that's exactly what we do. So as I say, it's not a searching, it's a finding. Mm -hmm. And um, um, and so we were able to do that. Now, in the case of the Caravelle project, the real problem was that there had been massive storms in the centuries since the ships had gone down. One of the things that, that uh, Roger and the others had not at all anticipated I mean, they, I must say, by the way, they, they just didn't know how to process this. We would get together every night and have dinner and go over how, what we were going to do the next day. And that just, it just didn't make any sense to them at all. They were very good sports. I, I, it was, it was very hard for them. One of the things that really was hard for them was that the, that the remote viewers said, oh, well, part of this ship isn't at all where you think it is, one of the consensus zones, because the ship was washed out to sea. It broke up into pieces. And they're in this reef out at the edge of the bay. And they just couldn't even conceptualize that. So yeah, they I gather they, they imagined that the ships would have been washed ashore, not washed out to sea. Exactly. So they just, and they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't search. They, they had, they were so, at this point, they were so desperate because they, I think their funding was running out. It took me a week to, I finally said to them, look, we're going to go home if you don't search this area. Because they kept saying to me, it couldn't possibly be out there. And yet when we went out there, that's where we found things. And two subsequent searches, that were carried out after ours found more stuff in the areas where the remote viewers had selected. So you can't go in. See, they, because they were doing it all intellectually and rationally. So they had deduced certain things should happen because that's what they expected to have happen. And we didn't go in with any of that. I didn't start out with any um, suppositions about how this thing happened or what happened or where things were. I just start out as a blank slate and I just listen to what the remote viewers say because I know that things happen that you just can't anticipate. Mm -hmm. So overall they had, they had offered, uh, let's see, a, a thousand and twelve concepts were advanced. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yes. And so. Uh, and we know that uh, this research that typically but somewhere between 35 and 45 percent of the concepts can't be evaluated. 
because you just don't know. Columbus was thinking of this as the as the mutiny was occurring. Well, I mean, unless he wrote it down, there's no way to know that. Might be true, might not. So not evaluatable doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means you can't evaluate it. And of the of the part that the way you could break it down, um, the, the the hit rate of this material was. Um, well, we broke it down even finer than that. I just have to read this because I can't remember it. Um, in terms of uh, an archaeologically useful hit rate comprised of correct, partially correct, 54% of, uh, of the 45% couldn't be evaluated. Right. Didn't know. Because the ships had broken up, so mm-hmm. things people said about why the ships broke up and how they broke up, we couldn't And, and the evaluation was done by Roger Smith, I gather. Oh, yes, yes. I don't ever do the evaluation. Mm-hmm. It's all, I either get other experts to come in and do it, or I, uh, but I don't do it because mm-hmm. I don't want to be criticized. Oh, you're just biased, so you're giving everybody the benefit of the doubt. So 54% could be done. Bottom features, 80% correct. Overburden, that is stuff that's above the wreck thing, 90%. Events subsequent to abandoning ships, 62%. Position of ship remains, 81%. Differentiation of the two ships, 60%. Geology, 95%. Um, That's incredibly accurate. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. We expect to see between 75 and 85 percent of the material that can be evaluated be either correct or partially correct, but operational. Now, what do I mean by operational? I mean, if I said the man who had uh, a, the blue and white striped shirt with um, uh, a dark gray uh, T-shirt, then that would be partially correct, but still operational. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so, yes, that's right. And it's that way over and over again. I mean, that's the point of this kind of thing. It's, it is, I, it works um, consistently. I've been doing this now for almost 50 years. And I have to tell you that that um, it's so consistent, in fact, that it's predictable. I mean, I'm just looking at the chart now. There were 1,203 concepts offered. 215 were correct. 176 were partially correct. 128 were wrong, 667 could not be evaluated. So you're, again, you're looking at a hit rate that, that at a practical level is saying to you, this is a reliable search technique that you can use and obtain practically useful uh, uh, results. And that was what I, 
That was the whole point. Mm-hmm. So at, at the end of the day, they weren't able to recover an intact shipwreck because the uh, too much time had passed and there were, I gather, earthquakes and storms and uh, the ships um, had been dispersed, but you found various remnants of the shipwrecks. Yes. I mean, yes, they had gone into this thing thinking they were going to find a shipwreck. Sort of like, um, well, another project we could talk about, the Beaks K wreck, where there was a physical, you know, a, a, a single big intact part of the ship still existed. And we will talk about it. Yeah. In, uh, okay. Uh, in, in a future uh, interview. Okay. <laughs> but uh, in this case, the viewers, that was one of the first things that they just couldn't take aboard, was that these ships were not intact, that there were just little pieces of them. And we brought up pieces. But the problem was you couldn't say with any certitude that this was the Capitano because what you're looking at is, you know, a piece of wood about three feet long. I mean, what does that tell you? One thing I think is worth looking at, considering, in this experiment there were eight viewers. So I want to give you the hit rate of the eight viewers. I think that's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Viewer number one, 89% hit rate. That's 89% of the items that could be evaluated. Could be evaluated were correct or partially correct but operational. R2, viewer 2, 65%. Viewer 3, 76%. Viewer 4, 57%. Viewer 5, 86%. Viewer 6, 67%. Viewer 7, 71%. Viewer 8, 67%. So you're going from a high of almost 90, it's actually 89 plus plus, to a low of of 57. So between 57 and 89% of the material that the viewers offered, that was the range. It was either correct or partially correct but operational of the material that could be evaluated. I I presume that when you apply the consensus methodology that you actually are able to even improve the accuracy even further. Yes, that was the next thing I was going to say is that, yes, when you look, when you do it consensually, and that's one of the reasons that you use multiple viewers, Mm -hmm. is that when when you do it consensually, then you winnow out inaccuracies because you'll get three people that will tell you the same thing and one person that won't get that. Now, if you were only using that one person, you wouldn't get it. But if you're using four people, the three who got it right and who agree, that gives you an edge. And I would also imagine with regard to the material that couldn't be evaluated, such as, for example, and I don't know specifically, but uh, hypothetically maybe the state of mind of Columbus and uh, things of that sort, uh, at least you can form some interesting uh, historical hypotheses. Oh, yes. I mean, in term, the fact that you couldn't evaluate them doesn't mean they're wrong. Mm-hmm. It just means you can't evaluate them. Yeah. Oh, yes. I think, actually, I think Roger particularly, he found some of that material quite interesting because the viewers 
gave descriptions of, you know, what happened. Nobody knows. I mean, there's, we know a little bit, we know about the mutiny, we know, there's a few things, but there are a lot of things that didn't, that, that were just unknown. And they gave a, a coherent narrative. So if you apply the same accuracy level to the, to the parts that you can check, to the parts that you can't check, then you can have some, you can repose confidence that the reconstruction of the events, the motivations, the attitudes, the uh, emotional uh, act, uh, state of the states of mind, the antagonisms between individuals, that that if you if you carry out the same um, rate that a whole dimension of this project or any project like this opens up in a way that you just couldn't otherwise access it. Yeah. And, and you have now presented uh, papers on this particular project, as well as others, not only to the Parapsychological Association, uh, but also to various nautical archaeology uh, groups. Yes, I start with the nautical archaeology groups. Mm -hmm. Because I, I saw this, I see this as an engineering problem involving a remote sensing technology that doesn't happen to be electromagnetic. The first people I thought of from the very beginning, the first people that I always thought of to present it to was the people who use these uh, electronic technologies to see whether, I, I have not been very successful with this, I confess, although the Caravelle is an example of where I was successful. Yeah. Uh, there and there are a couple others, but I was uh, what I was trying to say to people was: if you let consciousness back into science, you can do very interesting things that you could not otherwise be able to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Well, the mystery to me at, at this point or, is, is why when you've had not only this success, but a number of others, you present them to professional organizations. Uh, and yet, aside from your work in this area, I, I'm hardly aware of, of anything of significance that's been done, which makes me think that it requires somebody such as yourself with a unique personality uh, and vision to accomplish these projects. Well, I, I will say, I mean, as I say, I've been at this for 50 years now. I am disappointed that fewer people, that how few people have done it. Part of it, I think, in terms of at least the archaeology stuff is, first of all, it's, it's expensive. So you have to be able to raise money uh, at a scale that most parapsychological experiments, as parapsychological experiments, uh, just don't command. I mean, I don't know what this project cost, but, but, uh, the, the Beaks K project we're going to talk about. I mean, I had to raise over almost $2 million. So first of all, you have to be able to raise money yeah. to do it. Second of all, yes, I guess you have to have a certain kind of personality. <laughs> um, third is, Materialism 
Most people think of materialism as a scientific position. It's not. It is a cultural position. It's actually in contradiction to the actual evidence. It's a non-fact-based bias that is so powerful and it arises as a result of the Council of Trent and the Inquisition and hundreds of years of torturing and killing scientists who dared to get involved with consciousness. People are, I, I think the next generation, this isn't going to be true in the same way, but in my generation, uh, you're in my generation, um, people were incredibly resistant and they actually would rather fail than use it. Yeah. Well, it, it's a sad state uh, or a sad reflection of the era in which we live, but I, I can well imagine that uh, perhaps after you and I are both gone, the videos and the papers that you've written and the books that you've written will remain, and a new generation is going to uh, find some inspiration there. I hope so. I mean, I go to great lengths to record all this. I make movies. I make, you know, videos. It's all... I'm going to leave all of my papers to West Georgia University, uh, where they're putting together an archive of consciousness research. Uh, so I'm hoping that, yes, people will go back in the future and say, oh, geez, I, I, I could do that. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not that it's that complicated. It requires a kind of obsessive compulsion about detail and... Um, it requires you have to be willing to take risks. But as I, as you observe, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time and I've never had anything fail. I mean, that's from my point of view, looking back over it, I've only had one experiment fail. And that was one about applied kinesiology muscle testing. And I wanted, I didn't want it to fail. I meditated for three weeks before it happened asking, giving myself, or holding the intention, that would be a better way to put it, holding the intention that I would learn the truth, not my bias, not my expectation, but the truth. And because I had been asked by a close friend who said, do you know anything about muscle testing and does it work? And I didn't know the answer to that. So I did this large study and I came away and it didn't work. But in the archaeology and the remote viewing work, I never had anything fail. And uh, I mean, I, I, you could say, well, that's because uh, you're you. I don't know. But <laughs> I think that the same would be true of anybody who would go to the who would do it in the same detailed way. Yeah. I don't think I have any special other than I hold the intention that that um, uh that we get accurate data. But other than that, no, I think anybody that would follow the Mobius consensus protocol would get pretty much the same results I got. And in fact, SRI reported also that in their kind of studies like that, again, between 75 and 85% of the material that could be evaluated turned out to be correct. 
Mm-hmm. Well, Stephen Schwartz, uh, this has been a very informative uh, discussion, and uh, I'm hopeful that people will find inspiration and that we will see a, a whole new generation eventually of, of replications uh, of this kind of work and probably taking it even further. I hope so, too. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.